Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Like the most ridiculous thing to me in the world is that race is a social construct, which means yes. that it's not biologically real. Yes, your ethnicity, like, yes, I've, you know, you've got Nigerian blood. I've got blood from Benin. You know, these things, you know, your German ancestry, that is real. But the black, white color divide is, is something that we made up um, deliberately to oppress people and to privilege certain people. But the idea that race can be predictive of outcome, that race can actually be, that can be quantitatively, statistically linked back to, uh, you know, to, to, to looking at, to predicting somebody's future, how much money they're going to make. Uh, the fact that, you know, if you live in a certain zip code, we can, we can tell way more about your future than we can by, you know, by, by just other human conditions. It's, it's startling. Um, you know, so institutional bias has really, really far reaching impact. And again, we are not we don't have to be victims of it. That's, I think, one of the most important messages. Like yeah. when you look at it, it's scary. If you do your homework and you go back and you look at, um, you know, you look at this data like right now I'm, I'm reading stamped from the beginning. And oh, my gosh, it's like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what we have have been through to get here is so much. And we also have a long way to go. And I think that's why you know, why, why people are so upset because we want to believe that we've come so far and we have, you know, we're, yeah. you know, we, we are not in the same type of shackles that we were before, but we are all in a different kind of shackles. And the crazy thing is, you know, it's not just about the historically marginalized and, you know, and the, and the, uh, the, the oppressed and the people at the margins. How you did, how you did. That was the voice of Dr. Jana. And I love today's episode because a lot of you always ask me, what is my day-to-day like? What is it that I do with my career as a diversity consultant, as a speaker and a cross-cultural uh, coach? And a lot of what I do really is what Dr. Jana does. We both have diversity practices where companies bring us in to discuss how to mitigate mitigate bias, attract uh, diverse candidates, but also create an environment of inclusiveness. And today's topic is all about bias, individual bias, as well as institutional bias. How does this affect every fabric of our lives? You're going to hear a lot about her story. You're going to hear about how we both are kindred spirits. And you're also going to hear about why it's important for us to really understand, acknowledge, and move past our biases. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope it leaves you with many, many pensive thoughts, but also clues on how you can make this world a better place. We literally can reshape the world 
into a better environment. So why not? Okay, enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Dr. Tiffany Jana. She's the CEO of TMI Portfolio, which is a collection of socially responsible and interconnected companies working to advance more culturally inclusive and equitable workforces. She's an award-winning diversity practitioner. In fact, I first heard of her when I was reading her book, Overcoming Bias, and it was very, uh, very, very uh, excited to, to see that we were connected on LinkedIn. And now today we're going to be talking about her new book, Erasing Institutional Bias. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Pleasure is mine, Dr. Jana. So tell us about you. How did you even get into the field? What was early life like for you? Early, early life actually starts at the beginning. I am uh, doing what I like to say that most people on the planet are doing, which is the, the work that my, my parents do, or my mother does anyway. So my mother is actually a uh, practitioner of diversity and inclusion as well. So I came up watching her be a mompreneur and making <laughs> change in the world in this particular way as well. That's awesome. And so what was it like growing up with a diversity practitioner? Because I, I know um, I grew up as a son of a diplomat. And I observed a lot of things and I actually turned that into a talk. I called it the art of diplomacy, but it filtered its way into how I saw the world, but you ended up doing exactly what your mom does. So I'm just curious as to whether you always knew at, a, at an early age that you would, uh, you would see the world through that nuanced lens. And what, what was it like when you were hanging around with your other friends? Were you the kid that was looking like, Hey, that's inappropriate to say. <laughs> What about this kid? Open up. No, let's hear that person. I'm just curious about that as a, as, as a young, uh, uh, young lady. Yeah. So it's interesting because I did see the art of diplomacy and I loved it. Oh, thanks. Uh, and I immediately felt, you know, a very strong connection to you because growing up, um, you know, growing up the child of a diplomat is very similar to growing up the child of an of an army officer. So I was uh, an army brat and I was moving all around the world and having to fit into those environments very quickly. And so I, I saw a lot of parallels there. And yes, I think that once you your your young mind has been opened up to an inclusive way of seeing the world and the the various lenses of diversity, whether you're looking at in yourself internally, your family, or the whole wide world, you know, from the outside. And once you have that kind of exposure, you can't unsee it. Yeah. And so uh, for me, the, I mean, the most profound way that it showed up, like I definitely noticed the differences in the way that people were treated. Like I spent um, some formative years in, in Germany and I was the only, you know, black person, the only American person in German <laughs> schools. And I very quickly was able to see that, you know, the Czech children were treated differently. The Turkish children were treated differently. And I found myself on those margins. I never really, I never really found myself in a lot of situations where I wasn't treated well. Uh, but, but I, I have this, you know, I have this weird filter of being a little bit less concerned with what people think about me or what they might say about me. I focus my energy on how other people were being treated. And I spent my time defending being the champion of the otherwise defenseless. So mm -hmm. I was the, you know, I saw the bully and I would bully the bully uh, yeah. to get them to back off of the little guy. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we're, we're such kindred spirits. So, okay. So you touched on it there. I, I, that idea of bias, this is something that 
can be a trigger word for a lot of people. And I, I, you know, I also run a diversity inclusion uh, practice. And a lot of times, you know, I lead a lot of unconscious bias workshops. And when I bring up the term bias, sometimes people react with what you call me sexist, racist, or bigot. And, uh, you know, and I tell people that, you know, it's actually something we all have, right? This is something that we've, our brains, you know, needs to have in terms of whether it's protecting us or making sense of the world. But what has been your um, opinion? I mean, your first book was all about the individual bias, overcoming bias. What, 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 is, what is your thought on bias and how it shapes our world today? I mean, it is it is a programming, both internal and external. Like you said, there's a survival that the survival parts of our brains are the first influence. And then everything is data. We're taking in data all day, every day. And I think that, you know, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that it has such a bad reputation and that people get defensive and think that it's an accusation. It's really just a, a an observation of the human condition. Um, it's not an indictment. And just because you have bias doesn't necessarily mean you're going to act on it, but we do all have it. And I think that it's those, you know, it really is those formative experiences that lock down and ingrain the the, the initial biases that become our kind of uh, standard operating procedure or the initial programming that that runs through our code. So if you're, you know, your parents or whoever raised you, the, you know, the good folks that you were around and maybe the not so good folks who you were around, they, <laughs> you know, imbued you with certain ideas, certain beliefs. And, and even in some cases, things were unspoken. But as, you know, as human animals, we pick up the energy that's around us. So if I'm a small child and, you know, somebody walks, you know, across the street in the direction of us, regardless of what they look like. Um, you know, you can fill in the blank with whatever your mom decides is scary and she clutches her purse a little more tightly and holds your hand more tightly. You are immediately going to get the signals on a, on a primal level, on a visceral level that whatever that person is equals scary, uh, yeah. without her ever saying a word. So whether, you know, it, whether your parents were saying you can't play with that kid because they are fill in the blank or, the silent signals, the nonverbal cues, we're picking that up all the time. And we're even more sensitive to it, I think, as children, because that's when the foundation is being laid. So the foundation for bias was laid a long time ago. And I think that as adults, we have the the responsibility to actually unearth some of that stuff and make some choices about what we believe. Well, th that leads to my next question. How do we overcome this? Because I'm sure you have experienced this, and I, I've probably also been, I'm sure, for sure, I've, I've done, I've been on the other side of uh, perpetuating bias, and even though I try not to do that, but, you know, when I first came, I have that intersection of being Nigerian and confused as African-American, and so, you know, people would sing the Lion King songs, or people would ask me for my credit card, although they would hide their wallet, like, oh, you're going to take our credit card, you Nigerian prince? Wow. Or, you know, all these things, and it's, you know, it, it, when you experience that, like I did from the age of 10, right? When you, you find uh, yourself in an American international school after going through a dictatorship, you're like, oh, wow, this is a lot of change. Mm -hmm. And then your food is made to realize like, oh, it smells bad. Your hair is too curly. I'm very curious about ways that one, parents can uh, become aware of it within themselves and teachers can do the same before they can actually help the people that they, they you know, shepherd over uh, do the same. Is there, are there methods to uh, um, be more aware and are there methods to unlearn these things as you're teaching people you mentor? Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad that you, that you focused on the young people because 
that would be ideal. Like you and I, as diversity and inclusion practitioners, find ourselves probably very often working with, you know, mostly formed or fully formed adults and trying to undo a lot of, you know, bad programming. And that would ideally we would have these conversations and we would teach these lessons earlier on. So the first thing to recognize is that no one is going to eliminate bias entirely. You, you cannot erase it all from your consciousness, from your being, even if you're able to, you know, do some phenomenal work and, and, and eliminate, you know, most of the biases that you think you have, new ones are going to pop up behind them because again, it's the functioning of the human brain. So the first thing is it really does start with awareness. There, there still, unfortunately, is a critical mass of people who are under the the very misguided belief that they just don't have any bias. That's those defensive people who get upset, right, are, are, are hoping and praying and believing that they don't have bias. And so the first thing is really to internalize that and just understand that not only do you have it, but it, it doesn't mean that you are a horrible person. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean that your parents were racist or that you're racist or biased or sexist or whatever. It just means that you are a human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the acknowledgement of that, I, I think it's, it's, it's key. I think we live in an interesting time where we're simultaneously getting to finally call out some of the systems that we have in place, but we're also in a very um, call-out culture where it's reactive. Yeah. And so people are now afraid, which is interesting. It's such an interesting paradox. I, I, I've always said we need to re reconcile paradox because they've always existed throughout ages. And so the better we become at realizing that paradox exists, it, it will be better for us. But, you know, me too, time's up. And then you're at a time where, you know, someone will be like, ah, wow, I don't want to apply for this job because old tweets about me can surface and then oh. that could cause me to ruin. And then now I'm going to hide this thing and that curtails growth in my opinion so and, and it's such a tricky nuance balance because there are there are people that do need to be called out and do need to be potentially just put in jail for what they've done and there are also people that are actually missing out on growth because they're afraid of maybe monetary uh, consequences and so right. that leaves you and i at an interesting space where we're encouraging people to be vulnerable or encourage people to address these things but we're not in control of other people's reactions. How do right. you reconcile that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that's 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 the the big challenge because you know, in all of this work, we don't get to dictate how other people respond. We don't get to control that. So my my you know first invitation to everyone is, you know, you've got to focus. This is why we have to look at ourselves. Uh, we have to take responsibility for who we are, how we act, and how we treat people. And again, if we can start with our young people and get them to be aware of, you know, you need to think about what you're putting on social media. <laughs> you need to think <laughs> about what you're putting into the world because it is only the space that you occupy that you have any control over whatsoever. Um, that said, you know, I, I am optimistic and I do believe that we are moving towards a greater consciousness and that as these, you know, events unfold and we are, you know, sort of watching these these massive movements uh, unearth behavior that are less than stellar. I think that again, if you think about recognizing that you have bias because you are human, we also need to recognize that any of us, each of us, is vulnerable to, you know, to to mistakes. Yeah. When no one is perfect, and whether it is you who gets exposed for a mistake that you've made in your life, or someone you know and love. I think that the greater lesson and the opportunity here 
is for each of us to invite more grace into our hearts. We need to have more grace for each other because like I happen to be Christian, I, you know, identify that way. And so biblical wisdom, you know, is, is sort of accessible to me. And so it's like there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? You, it could be you, it could be your sister, your cousin, your mother, your father, your aunt, your son, who is going through that same thing. It's very easy to gossip and judge when it's far away from you, but it is, you know, only but for a, a moment, a blink of an eye, and it could be a lot closer. And you would want people to have grace for you. So we need to have more grace for each other. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, we're, we're going to dive into institutional bias very soon. Uh, I guess we've talked about understanding the problem there, which is, first of all, everyone acknowledging that we all have biases and then doing the work to figure out our biases. Sometimes the problem does then becomes, well, I don't have any bias. How do you put yourself in a position where you confront your bias, one, and then you then find tools to working by. Some people might say, look, I have this bigoted view. I've talked to people who've told me, I, I went to school in Virginia, so sometimes, um, you know, uh, it wasn't necessarily the, the, the pigmentation of, of preference in some of the places I went to. And they're like, hey, look, you're one of the good people, right? Uh, but I don't know what to do because I've only surrounded myself with people that look like me. And every time I see, this is a real conversation, every time I see one of you, it's always some argument or some rap video. Um, and, you know, how can I normalize myself? And taking away the offensiveness of the way that question was framed, uh, are you saying that people need to start taking more agency and accountability and saying, hey, explore your curiosity more and actually try and ask yourself other perspectives of the stories that you're, you've been received, you've been taught or inculcated, uh, indoctrinated with as a kid? Yeah. So, I mean, this is where proximity becomes really important. So you and I serve as ambassadors for our, our races, right? And um, for our ethnicities and nationality. And so we, people want to make us the exception because for whatever reason, we represent things that they are comfortable with. We represent um, you know, perspectives that are closer to their own and they have otherized, you know, either black people or African people or African-Americans or whatever so much that the notion that someone who looks like us could have so much in common with them or resonate with things that are good is actually disrupting their status quo. It's actually creating cognitive dissonance. I think, so I think in those moments, the opportunity that we have is to, is to help them see the discrepancy and challenge their own beliefs and help them recognize that we are not the exception, that there are many, many more people like us. And what those folks are lacking in those moments is proximity. You know, I like to point out that we are more segregated now in the United States than we were in the height of legalized segregation. And when you don't have proximate relationships, real day-to-day -day interactions with people across the differences and across spectrum, then it's very easy to take the media's word for whatever people are going to be painted as. It's very easy to, to take other people's word for whatever it is that people are going to be stereotyped as. And we really need to stop relying on external indicators um, and external depictions of people and cultures and various demographics. And we need to start forming relationships with people who are different from us. And that was probably, no, definitely the greatest gift that I received from that 
that third culture education that I had, right. That you and I both experienced is that while I had was able to see all of those differences at a very, very young age, I was also very quickly able to see how much we actually had in and no one will ever be able to take away the humanity in my fellow person. I, I see it. I feel it. I know it. I know that you are my family, whether you are Republican or Democrat. I know that you are my brother, whether you are black, white, or Asian. People need to have more experiences to make that real. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. And then, and that's so true. Um, I, I love how you, you, you talked about us being aware of the, the external and understanding the, the, um, the impact of relationships because it, what happens is when we, we don't get enough external or we believe some of the external things we've dehumanized people when you right. dehumanize, yeah, when you de- it becomes easy for you to just dismiss. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Um, institutional bias. Let, let's talk about that. that. That's your book is called race institutional bias. And for anyone listening, please get this book. I've, you know, uh, you know, I, I just went through my, my hundred books that I read last year. This was one of the books. So check, Check it out. It's it's a good read, and um, you know if you like audiobooks, you, uh, the audiobook is also a good read. But it's it's a great way of breaking down what happens in our institutions today. So can you tell us why you wrote it and what it is about? Yeah. So after writing my first book, Overcoming Bias, which was really written from the perspective of the individual, how do I find my biases? What do I do about them? Uh, the the sort of natural outcropping from there was, okay, well, now I can see unconscious bias a little more clearly, and I can see it operating at a larger scale outside of myself. What do I do if I'm just one person, but I can see um, I can see bias operating at my, you know, at my company, at my church, in my community, in my society at large. So I wanted to uh, provide people with some guidance in a, in, in these situations which can appear, so incredibly daunting when you are one person, particularly if you're not the CEO of the company or the pastor of the church, you feel even less empowered to make change at these large scale levels. So I wanted to provide people with some guidance for how they can make inroads against bias uh, when when the bias is coming from external forces. Yeah. And it, it goes to your earlier point. You said, which is the most fascinating stat. I've heard I've heard people say that I've seen it, I've investigated it, but I'm sure people will be shocked by what you said. You said we're actually more segregated now uh, than we were at the height of legalized segregation. Yes, and it's I mean, and that is exactly that is the, a, dem- a demonstration of of the you know of the the institutionalized bias over time, where we have actually codified things, created things like redlining, and created things that further separated us. And that the legacy of that, the long-term, you know, generational impact of the biases that used to be that used to be legal um, and enforced in in with you know legalistic structures, that structural bias has far-reaching implications. And the crazy thing is that when we look at where our society is today, and a lot of people are you know really keyed up and activated after this last presidential election. The, the reality is that we are exactly in the, you know, in the world of our making, in the America of our making. Yes. This was designed yes. this way. And so I wrote Erasing Institutional Bias because I want people to recognize that we can have an alternative. There are other ways to be, but we are going to have to design it every bit as deliberately and intentionally as the garbage state that we're currently living in was designed. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I, this is something I believe wholeheartedly. I, I think much like we individual need to acknowledge uh, individual bias. I think institutions, countries, religions, everything. I'm a Christian as well, but um, they need to acknowledge uh, the role they've played. And a lot of times, I, I see a lot of accountability being passed. And I'm and I've always said, you know, as is a product of colonialism which, you know, British rule and divide and, and conquer with tribalism, I see the long-lasting effects of that where your tribe, it's almost more important than whatever you, you're doing. It's it's a it's an indoctrinator from your parents. It's the same thing with religion. And sometimes we even in places like South Africa, some of the scripture was altered in a way where you were dehumanizing people. So all these things filter the way into society today, into redlining, like you said, and for those that don't understand redlining, it's a way housing was structured to um, separate um, white people versus black people. I, I I see this and I'm like, no one has even acknowledged the role they played in this at first mm-hmm. for anyone to even understand what's the problem. And, and do you agree that people need to acknowledge this first and just sort of like decide what the next step is? Yeah, because there's, you know, this the, this conversation, you know, and conversations like this really upset people because it challenges their notions of everything that they understand and know and believe. And so, like, just as I do in my in my diversity practice, people need to lead with data. Stop taking people's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Go look it up. If If, if the idea of redlining and the fact that people deliberately valued neighborhoods that had people of color as less valuable... Um, and and refused to give you know people of color loans, which 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 allowed them to um, not be able to benefit from owning housing and property, which creates generational wealth. Like you can go back and you can look these things up, and you'll realize that it's not about opinion, it's not about conjecture, it's not about politics. This is the reality of our history. So understand where we've been, understand how these conditions were created, and continue to look at at the the data surrounding the impact, like the most ridiculous thing to me in the world is that race is a social construct, which means that it's not biologically real. Yes, your ethnicity, like, yes, I've, you know, you've got Nigerian blood, I've got blood from Benin, you know, these things, you know, your German ancestry, that is real. But the black, white color divide is, is something that we made up um, deliberately to oppress people and to privilege certain people. But the idea that, race can be predictive of outcome, that race can actually be, that can be quantitatively, statistically linked back to, uh, you know, to, to, to looking at, to predicting somebody's future, how much money they're going to make. Uh, the fact that, you know, if you live in a certain zip code, we can, we can tell way more about your future than we can by, you know, by, by just other human conditions. It's, it's startling. Um, you know, so institutional bias has really, really far reaching impact. And again, we are not, we don't have to be victims of it. That's, I think, one of the most important messages. Like yeah. when you look at it, it's scary. If you do your homework and you go back and you look at, um, you know, you look at this data, like right now I'm, I'm reading stamped from the beginning and oh my gosh, it's like, <laughs> <there's, Yeah. laughs> what we have, have been through to get here is so much. And we also have a long way to go. And I think that's why you know, why, why people are so upset because we want to believe that we've come so far and we have, you know, we're, yeah. you know, we, we are not in the same type of shackles that we were before, but we are all in a different kind of shackles 
And the crazy thing is, you know, it's not just about the historically marginalized and, you know, and the and the uh, the the oppressed and the people at the margins. What folks have to understand and what people like you and me who've been able to live around the world and really experience culture and humanity at it in a different way through a different lens, what people have to understand is that when you know, when part of the human family is hurting, it's hurting all of us. Everyone. So yeah. whether you're black, you're white, you're female, you're male, you're gender nonconforming, whatever it is, when we are treating people differently and creating systems that reinforce, you know, oppression, all of us suffers for it. And yeah. I don't think people realize that. They feel like, oh, it's not affecting me, so it's not a big deal. You have no idea. That that is one hundred percent correct. And and you you brought up something. You said race is a social concept. Uh, construct and and the interesting thing is that it's it's so true it's a social construct but it racism is real which is such mm -hmm. a weird it's it's mm -hmm. it's the weirdest paradox racism mm -hmm. is real but ra racism is a social construct uh, construct and then you talked that there I, I just wrote a poem that's because um, I I have a, a I'm, I write a lot of poems and one of the things that I talk about is history and I said history doesn't have to be a mystery but I one of my final lines was just because some of us fear what history might tell us about our current traditions and heritage doesn't mean we shouldn't we shouldn't tell complete stories of the past and i've seen this because you know whether it's thanksgiving columbus day or or just telling black history from the time of uh, <laughs> slavery or not telling a lot of you know native american history or latin america or asian history i um, I've seen the effect of how that can have kids and people in the workplaces when they're hiring feel like you don't have any contribution. I never learned anything about what you do, um, it, what you've done. So mm -hmm. my bias is going to impact because I don't think I want to work with you. And so, <laughs> and so this institution of bias, your book, which why I love it is so important is because it, it dives into occupational, racial, gender, hiring, customer retribution. And all these things all start from the, the from exactly what you're saying. It's it's we are in some sort of sh shackles of our own doing that we can now, you know, free ourselves of if we just say, hey, we've clearly done some things that have been wrong in the past. What can we do collectively <laughs> to tell your story more and more? You know, that's why all the Black Panther and, and Crazy Rich Asians, which I watched four times mm -hmm. each, <laughs> I watched four, times, four times each last year, um, were so important because I, 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 I've been lucky enough to know where I'm from being Nigerian and, and, and tracing my history there. But I went to movies, a lot of people were saying, wow, that's, I never, wow, that's possible. You know, that's a, a representation of Africa I haven't seen. And the Crazy Rich Asians is first all Asian cast since Joy Luck Club, which is, it's and it's not even whole the whole of Asia, just a part of Asia. So it's I'm just rambling now, but I I, I really was uh, affected by the point you were raising that this institutions that we have to have, you know, media, parents, schools, workplaces, there is a level of accountability that we all have to just address, and and we all have to get uncomfortable. I think a lot of times it favors maybe like, oh, you're gonna ruin my Christmas holiday or you're gonna ruin my Thanksgiving, but you can have those holidays and still tell the truth. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. You're not, you're not rambling. You are, you are sharing the wisdom. Like this <laughs> is, these are the conversations that people need to be having. And the fact that we have, we have created uh, a tension in society 
that is making people, like you said, just afraid to, to be able to, you know, pursue their dreams, to better themselves, to really step out there. And I would love to see some of that fear. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dissipated so that yeah. people can, can have these conversations safely. Um, and again, that's where that grace comes in. We need to be able to um, in, include folks from all different backgrounds into these kinds of conversations and be prepared for them to 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 not get it right sometimes, to sometimes yeah. mess up. Whether it's your, you know, just like workplaces, I have to encourage people to create space for failure because you don't get the innovation, you don't get the best of the human experience and the human brilliance and intelligence if you don't allow for failure. And we have to do the same thing socially. We have to understand that we're going to bumble and we're going to bump up against each other in ways that are uncomfortable, but we've got to create the space to do that as long as we're all in pursuit of growth. So I don't encourage people to just walk around and say any old dumb thing. Um, But, you know, your intention really matters. And if you are being intentionally inclusive and you're trying to understand and you're trying to connect and you're trying to grow that intent goes a long way it's it's one of those nonverbal cues just like when mom clutched the purse and grabbed your hand really hard when you you know when you step into you know a diversity pile of doo-doo and you say the wrong thing and you use the wrong pronoun and you slip up and use an antiquated you know nomenclature for something if your intent is okay and you're willing to stop and uh, and apologize, acknowledge when you re- recognize you've messed up, don't hide from the mistake, don't run away, just say, hey, you know what, like, I, whether somebody called you out or you call yourself out, I realized that I, you know, I, I bumbled that, I got it, I, I did not do that as well as I could have, please allow me to correct the mistake and, you know, you know, I, I, I apologize, just, you know, own it and try to move forward. And again, if you're on the receiving end of it, Try to have some grace for your brother or sister because being human is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And many times we don't let other people be human. No. Yeah. No, it's easier to let your friends and family, and I call them the relationships that have legs, right? When you've got skin in the game and you have a reason for this, this, this interaction to go on, um, it's so much harder to have that kind of grace and compassion and patience with people we barely know. And I, I dare say we need to extend that grace a little further beyond the, the comfortable relationships. Absolutely. And, and I think we judge ourselves based on our intentions and others based on the, the outcomes. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we sometimes forget that, yeah, you know, right. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, but I, I'm, I'm an optimist as well. And, and I believe that um, I think we're in a good place. I think this is, you know, people, are, people always say, how can you be an optimist? But I, I grew up in two dictatorships. So I'm like, ah, you know, I'm fine. But <laughs> I've seen, I've seen, I've seen worse than this, but, but I love when mirror images are, are put in front of us where you actually have to be uncomfortable because maybe it's because I was uncomfortable for a lot of my uh, childhood and it suited me well. I, the identity crisis is ultimately what I built my career out of. But um, I, I think it's also a, a wonderful, uh, you know, opportunity for growth and collaboration. So that's that's why I love that. I, the audience might be might have heard me say, oh, occupational bias, racial bias, gender, hiring, customer and retribution. I want to this is you know, the lingo for both of us, but what, what, what are those types of biases that you're bringing up in the book and why are they important so that the audience knows? Yeah. So I would say that the, you know, racial bias and gender bias, I think people are pretty familiar with. These are the, the ones that get a lot of the press. Um, but I feel like uh, things like customer bias uh, and hiring bias might be a little bit more nuanced. And then retribution bias would be the one that people would be least familiar with. But customer bias is, you know, the idea that you have an idea of, you know, what your customer, uh, you know, looks like, who is the, what is the profile of your customer? So, you know, frequently when we talk about diversity and inclusion, people are, sometimes they come to it realizing that they need to have access to more markets, more different kinds of people. And if you think about it in something like, uh, if it's a product, then you just want you know, you, you, if you look at, at the customers, uh, the commercials for products, you might see, you know, a certain kind of family or you might see certain demographics using products. When in fact, lots of different people could, would or do use the product. So you want to expand so that you don't limit the, the reach of your product. Um, if you think about nonprofits and like the nonprofits function based on donorship, right? And if you if you are always targeting older white men for donors because there's, you know, you think that they're the only people with money, you might be missing a huge donate donor base just because you're limiting who you think your donor is or could be. And so that's, that's one of them. Um, hiring and advancement bias is, is more about who's getting hired and who's getting promoted. So a lot of times people can see that, you know, they'll, they'll actually reach out and they'll say, you know what, Dr. Jana, we, we have a challenge. Our company is, you know, really largely one demographic or only one demographic, and we didn't mean to do that. And so that might be evidence of a hiring bias. So you like you 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 keep sourcing people from the same universities or from the same networks. So you've got to expand that reach because again, your bottom line will be affected. Your relevance in the community, your relevance in the marketplace will be affected if you don't have diversity represented. Advancement bias shows up when you have, let's say you actually have diversity in the organization, but if all of the, you know, the diversity or the different kinds of people are concentrated at the lowest level of the organization, and then as you go up, it all becomes more homogeneous, that's probably an advancement challenge because, you know, and, and, and typically I'll go ahead and name it because I'm, I'm being vague on purpose because the assumption is always, okay, so it's, oh, it's white males running in the organization and all the black people are at the bottom of the organization. But if, you, if you're talking about homogeneity, like diversity can be a challenge. If you have an all black organization, that's, that's not going to be, you know, diversity representative. And if you've got, if you look at the top of the organization and it's all African-Americans and you've got, you know, all Asians who are doing the, the work at the lowest levels of the organization, that's still a diversity challenge. So 
the the groups with the big numbers tend to win. So it tends to, you know, black and white and, you know, black and Latinx and white and Latinx plays out a lot, but it can show up in any way. And again, with a global perspective, if you look around the world, what makes the majority and the minority and who's on the margins changes within a context. Um, I do think, though, that the biggest contribution that we've made in this book, Ashley Diaz Mejias uh, is my co-author. Uh, she and I, uh, we were really excited for a moment because we thought we coined the phrase retribution bias, but it actually did appear in someone's research. Uh, they didn't really expand it very far. So our our contribution to the body of knowledge is expanding the idea of retribution bias, which is uh, simply put, the human tendency to favor punishment over relationship, to mm. favor punishment over rehabilitation. And the the biggest example that we use in the context of the book um, is the criminal justice system in the United States of America, where we've got really disproportionate numbers of African Americans um, in within the within the penal system, uh, much higher percentages than you have in the whole overall population. And, you know, people serve their time, but their sentence isn't over. Like people get out of prison, they've, they've done what they were supposed to do, paid their debt to society and treating them as second and third class citizens long after they've, they've actually served their, their time. Wow. Wow. That was deep. Uh, and congrats on expanding that definition. Favor and punishment uh, is, uh, I, I, it's really a, it plays its, uh, itself plays itself out when we do the call-out culture. We were talking about that before we hit record. And there's a tendency to want to sort of say, well, you did this, you did that. I'm going to look up, I'm going to dig up tweets from 29 years ago <laughs> and figure mm -hmm. something uh, that, that you've said just because, you know, I guess it gives us some sort of satisfaction. That's, huh. But if I play devil's advocate here, I, I, know, how, I know how I answer this question because I get this question a lot. But I'm putting myself in the, in the listener here. Hey, well, I want to diversify my organization. I recognize there, you know, there's an investment bias, for example, but my pipeline is is so thin, and we recruit from such and such. How would I even fix that? That, that keeps me at a loss of words, um, and that's one question. And then the other question is, is this is a family-owned business. What do you want me to do? Give it outside my family? So those are two. <laughs> those are two questions. Um, what do you say to those things? So the the answer to both of them actually is is very similar. The relationship between the two of them is is myopia. Um, it's 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 short sightedness, right? And so yes, if you look at your current condition and you look at where you are now and you say, well, I can't make anything different because this is the current state of things, and so be it. Then sure, then you can live in that place, but. Um, if you are you are the owner or an executive at an organization, you're supposed to be taking a long view. You should be having some kind of visionary idea of where the organization is going, where you want it to be, and the values that you stand for. So now, you know, this is this is not an imperative. People can do what they want. If you want it to be a, you know, small family owned business forever and you don't ever want anybody outside of the family to be in it, that's totally OK. Good luck with that, because at some point you really probably do need to have people outside of the family just because if the company actually grows successfully, you can't make babies fast enough <laughs> to populate the company. Right. And at that point, when you're talking about bringing in people you can make a choice to be inclusive. You can make a choice about 
the practices that you're going to engage in when you're looking at hiring and advancement. If you don't make a choice, the unfortunate default with the way that the human bias is wired and way that our societies are is that you're very likely to end up with something that is homogeneous, something that is not representative. And, and it's not, it, it might not be out of um, intent or malice. We default to our networks. We default to what we know. And if you go back to the earlier point that we made about our, our society, particularly in the United States, being more segregate, segregated than we've ever been, then you understand that if you don't have those relationships and you don't have diverse networks and you don't have proximity and therefore you know relationships that help you see the p- human potential, no matter what package it comes in, you're less likely to look for it, seek it, and hire and grow in that way. So you have to be intentional if you want to really be inclusive. Or you have to look for you know people and and recognize that when you find talent that maybe does look like you and have a lot of similarities with you, but they actually have really diverse networks and they think differently than you in this way, you have to understand that that kind of inclusive outlook is every bit the asset of a you know a, an MBA or a doctorate degree or 35 years of experience in the field. You might not be the one who has that inclusive outlook, but when you find it in other people, you need to understand that that's an asset and 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 potentially hire for it. As far as the the pipeline piece goes, again, it's the it's the the short game, right? If you're you don't see it now, the pipeline is thin. What am I going to do? We've been having these conversations for years. And again, yeah. if you're an organization looking to grow, then you need to be thinking about the future. I've got, you know, clients now and, you know, potential clients who, you know, if if they had started nurturing the pipeline 10 years ago when they first started having the conversation, they'd actually have a crop of, you know, emerging college students now who would be, you know, early career but ready to hire. So if you don't have a pipeline or you don't see what you're looking for, create it contribute to it. Use your volunteer time to to go get in front of, you know, students of color, to get in front of, you know, women uh, who and, and girls who could potentially go into tech. Show the world, particularly the marginalized world or the underrepresented world, what their options for the future are, and they'll try to find paths to get to you. And if you have the resources to smooth that path and actually, you know, seed that path, you will go a long way towards creating your own pipeline. You will outcompete all of your competitors by nurturing that pipeline and building those relationships early on. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what I always say to my clients. And sometimes it might push, push back like we got to make profits. But I think what, what you said, it hits the nail on the head. It's, 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 you could create your internship program. You could go to, you could partner with the local school. You could say, hey, this is our day where we're doing this. Whenever you're recruiting the colleges, don't just stop at the like uh the career office what about the affinity groups like you know the you know african-american group the latin american group the asian group there's so many ways that you can get creative um if you really wanted to make that uh you know i guess if it was a core value of your company you know exactly that's, yeah that's how you know the difference between you just said that or you really want to do that because i think the the misconception is that Diversity and inclusion is easy. The, the idea that people from different backgrounds are not going to experience conflict or it's not going to be 
hard to convince someone to come to a place where they don't see enough of themselves is um is misplaced because it's just it's nature. We're tribalistic. You said we have our biases. We categorize things naturally anyway. So if you don't come across as you know honest or authentic, you're that's gonna come. It's really gonna be uh, easily sniffed out. So. Um, yeah. And then I love the the point you made about hiring for the talent that you're seeking for. Maybe, maybe make that person, make that a full-time job for someone. So. Yeah. And the other thing I would say that I like to make sure people know when we're talking about the pipeline, because, you know, I understand the pace of business. I've got three companies for crying out loud. It's, it's fast. And if you're successful and you're doing it well, you know, it, it, it moves really quickly and it's, and it's can be hard to see the forest for the trees. So the other option that people have that they, you know, overlook is for whatever industry you're in, whatever field you're in, there is any number of professional associations that are related to the job functions that you're trying to fill. And for every professional association that exists, there are several of them that are divided out by affinity. So if you've got, you know, if you're looking for a CFO or an accountant, you know, the, the, the National Association of Certified Public Accountants, you know, there's one for African-American accountants. There's one for Asian accountants. There's one for Latinx accountants and, and so on and so on. With every professional association you can think of, there are groups of minority subsets of that affiliation of that affiliation and that association that are getting together on a regular basis they are always looking for content connections networks speakers find out where they are find out who they are in your city show up and say hey i've got this company we're growing even if you're not hiring at the moment go build the relationship and say you know we're not hiring now but we will at some point and i'd love for your members to be aware of us like yeah. a little bit of effort goes a long way it does. It does. We're talking to Dr. Jana here, who's the author of Erasing Institutional Bias. Where can they get Erasing Institutional Bias? You can get it at erasinginstitutionalbias.com. You can get it on Amazon, on Kindle, Audible, everywhere books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's amazing. If you want to hear more of these amazing conversations, you should definitely check it out. You should also check out TMI Portfolio. Now, when I first um, you know, uh, discovered your work, it, it, it was a different iteration of your company. Uh, yes. but you've since evolved. I think you're, you're doing more artificial intelligence and machine learning and things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So TMI consulting was the first company and now the portfolio of companies includes loom technologies. So we are actually, we've put metrics behind diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're measuring mapping and improving organizational culture using the power of artificial intelligence and we're really taking diversity to the next level because we've got metrics and accountability in an industry that really doesn't have much of that. Yeah, yeah. So so how would that work? So someone like me might need some metrics. I'll come to you. Is there something I buy or how does that work? Yeah, so we would put your organization through an organizational assessment. So people would, you know, just take that at their uh, for now, we're actually we're in we're in beta. We're headed to MVP, but we would people would sign up online. Uh, they would go through an assessment and we would deliver, you know, kind of scorecards and, uh, you know, results for folks and then the uh, for the organization. And we would give them a uh, roadmap that gives them step by step instructions on how to get the organization from where it is to where it wants to be. But we map out the culture and we look at, you know, 80 different interpersonal and, and organizational competencies across 11 categories. We're measuring things like bias, emotional intelligence. And I think that as a CEO, like I want, I want to know one, what is my ROI for what I'm spending on this diversity and inclusion stuff? And if I can 
quantify how much you know emotional intelligence I have in my sales department or how much bias I have in my marketing department, that can help me with really targeted interventions. And we do everything from the diagnostic part all the way through the intervention uh, and the improvement. See, no, no, I love that. And you, so you're so you're not only an optimist in in our, our you know current racial justice world, and you're also an optimist in the artificial intelligence world. <laughs> so that comes with its own share of uh, interest and opinions as well. What makes you an optimist with AI? Uh, well, I understand that you know, particularly since I am measuring bias, I understand that co code itself is biased and artificial intelligence is biased. And so uh, we're working really hard to make sure that we have, you know, code of color and um, you know, women code and LGBT code. We're trying to diversify the base of people that we work with uh, on the data analytics side, on the um, you know, on the, uh, you know, all the computer science side, because again, you can't eliminate it entirely, but, you know, code is inherently biased because we, you know, if, if we, if we stack too much of our tech dependency in the hands of single demographics, then the bias becomes a much larger scale systemic problem. So we're trying to address that. And that is a, you know, that's a nut that we're all still trying to crack. Nobody has the a single solution yet, but we are mitigating against that risk. Yeah, and that's good. It's good. It's good. I mean, it's almost like you do this for a living. You have the right answers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to stump Dr. John now. She's like, oh, well, technically we are. <laughs> 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 uh, okay. So um, th this is, this is interesting for me. I, I, I always like to pull up fun facts. I did in your first book, I remember you saying uh, that you are in an interracial marriage. Um, I was. I, I I just completed my third and final marriage. I'm a free okay. and independent well, human. Okay. Well, <laughs> I I mean, you you and Jeff Bezos are in. You know, you've completed that that iteration. But the reason why I brought that up. Wait, are you gonna get me an introduction? Is that what that is? <laughs> I mean, sixty-eight billion dollars. If that's what goes down, is gonna be. <laughs> no, but I, I guess the the reason I brought that up is uh, you've been. I, I guess you've been in uh i guess non-interracial marriage and an interracial marriage uh -huh. and i'm always curious about the dynamics and how that plays with with children because do you encounter you do you find yourself having to you know answer different questions uh with with the kids or do you find yourself having to deal with uh, people of color saying you sold out or things like that I, and i'm saying this because i've heard every iteration from you sound white or you're, what are you doing for your people type of thing? And I, I'm very curious about how you navigate that because I get a lot of those questions and yeah. it's always interesting to get those from, me, from people like yourself. So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that I'm sure people have a lot of things to say to me, but very few people will say them to my face. There's something <laughs> about me that people don't really want to confront. So um, uh -huh. they're welcome to it. Uh, but in the case, in my case, I would say that the the white man I was married to um, I actually, I actually had, uh, he, he, I met him working with my mother's company. And so he was a white, uh, anti-racist. And so he was very, you know, steeped in the work. He was the co-author for the first book. Right. Um, yeah, so, that. so that, you know, I whatever, whatever questions anyone might've had about that interracial relationship, it made sense. It was equally yoked because we were doing, uh, racial reconciliation work and, and sort of world, um, unification work. 
as as a as a livelihood. So we were, you know, literally and physically a embodiment of racial reconciliation. Too bad it didn't work out. But <laughs> I hope that that is not a foreshadowing for what's going to happen with the rest of the earth. But <laughs> oh my god, uh, I love this. Uh, no, it, no, it's interesting. I just brought that up because um, it's something I, I have. A, I have two brothers. One is uh, uh, is married to to a lovely um, lady from um, Florida and Alabama, and and she's white. And I've seen him deal with it. Yeah. And, uh, and and there's new you know nuance being Nigerian and being black and and uh, being in the South. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I, I live in New York, so my experience is, is a little different. But I I always see that and I, I just wonder sometimes. You yeah, know? I mean early on, so we were together for almost ten years, and in the beginning, at that time there were not a lot of interracial um, couples that were really visible. Um, in Richmond, Virginia, and and particularly not in our pairing. So much more common it was, you know, black man, white woman. But to have a black woman with a white man, you know, back then, a decade ago, here was no, nowhere near as common. Um, and there there are only a couple of instances that stood out. Like I I remember my uh, my oldest daughter was at a very elite private school. Right. And, you know, when I was a starving artist and, you know, I was uh, I was a divorcee, I was single, um, you know, I was, you know, very, you know, just probably just a cute little token Beyonce parent who was <laughs> in the environment. Right. Um, yeah. There were not a lot of uh, students of color at all. Uh, when I was married to my second husband, who was Ethiopian, like, you know, he was tall, dark and handsome and everything was fine. No one batted an eye. But when I showed up to that school with a white husband, the attitude of particularly the women around me changed dramatically. Mm. Um, and it was really weird. I, initially, I thought maybe it was um, that they were concerned that if, if, if I was with a white man, that my black daughter would be interested in their white sons. Mm. Um, and I thought maybe that was it. And then, a, you know, a friend of mine disabused me of that notion. She was like, no, nah, no, nah, Tiffany, no, they were worried that you were going to take their white husbands. I was like, oh yeah. I mean, I was a model and an actor and, you know, I mean, I mean it's Dr. Jenner, right? I mean, maybe, maybe that's what it was, but Look I thought her that was <laughs> that that that's that's fascinating. I, I I love your perspective, uh, your sense of humor. But yeah, I mean, that it. I brought that up because it plays into many insecurities that sometimes do stem from biases. Actually, a lot of times they stem from biases, and um, and I and I want the people and and, and the ladies and gentlemen uh, listening to the podcast to understand that whenever we bring a bias, it's not just some oh two diversity professionals talk about this. This is something that affects every asset every facet of your life uh, of your life rather you know from the decisions you make who you marry what you do where you live you know what you read and things you you surround yourself with and you're going to find those unconscious thoughts coming into your mind you might not have thought that you had a problem with something and you're like ah i reacted differently and so i, I want to invite the audience to sort of question those things um within themselves and say well why did i just say that so um yeah, yeah no, I think the, the other thing that that puts me in mind of is the um, attributional ambiguity. Um, and that is the the notion that, you know, particularly when you have a marginalized identity or intersecting marginalized identities, 
you know, when stuff like, I don't know what those women were thinking, you know, they might've all collectively just randomly had weird days and bad days. And maybe the Botox went sideways and they were just making that funny <laughs> face for a different reason. I don't know. But when you, when you represent, you know, any kind of marginalized identity and, 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 you know, unfortunate things happen or people say weird things, you can't really actually attribute it specifically to anything, but you know that you're having an experience. And this is why, again, race is predictive of outcome and racism is real because that kind of uncertainty that is, that is always paired with negative treatment, it causes anxiety, high blood pressure, exacerbates existing medical conditions and creates conditions because we are sensitive as human beings. So this stuff is very real. How, I mean, we, we have study after study after study that show you that, that, that prove that how you think about, you know, a person, an animal, a situation can actually affect the person, the animal, the situation, your, you know, your silent musings are not going into a void. If you yeah. believe that certain children in your class are geniuses and are smarter than others, they're going to perform better even if you don't think that you're acting on it. You actually are. Yeah, yeah. No, I. this is so true. I, I love this stuff, uh, energy and, and all of that. I, so I'm going to put the show notes. I'm going to make sure I put the um, link to TMI portfolio as well as your books because I imagine there are going to be a lot of questions that people have from this. But ah! I could talk all day, but we have to stop now. So <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the, the, is this a testament to, to your ability and your 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 just uh, your uh, well intentioned career as well as just well practiced career because it, it's it stems from you observing your your mom and then you've just elevated it with being more inclusive of different uh, perspectives. You know wh- whether you bring an esoteric religion and different things like that, you are able to sort of have this conversation from different perspectives. And I appreciate that. Um, Thank you you so much for that compliment. I appreciate how thoughtful you are. Nah, you're welcome. You're welcome. So my final question is, is a a reframing of my mission statement. So my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. And it's the foundation of everything that I do and, and, and act. Um, So I'm always asking my audiences the question, how do you, uh, Dr. Jana, use your difference to make a difference? So, the the interesting thing about my differences is that each of them really stands at an intersection i am you know i'm not the darkest black person or the whitest white person i'm not the straightest straight person or the gayest gay person um i'm not the most feminine or the most masculine I've got these identities. I identify in the middle of so many spaces. You know, I'm not the most Christian or the most atheist. I have both through, you know, genetic identity, um, personal identity, through, through, you know, physiological DNA and whatever it is that causes these different things. I've landed at the nexus point of so many different identities that my differences serve as a bridge. I understand the perspective of the Republican and the Democrat, the conservative, the liberal, the gay, the straight, the religious, the atheist. I understand every side of all of these different ways of being human. And I feel like the only choice that I have is to stand in the middle of that bridge, extend my arms both ways, and try to help people find each other across the divide. Yeah. 
Yeah, bridging divides. Literally your physical embodiment of your values. That's always a beautiful place to be. Um, mm -hmm. oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your humorous yet insightful, <laughs> <laughs> insightful stories. Um, I, I, I know that we're going to get a lot of chocolates, but also um, a lot of insight um, into the world that we live in today. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Tayo. This has been awesome. <laughs> thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 